My name is Duke Bendix. I'm one of the associate pastors here. And uh, I, we are going to be concluding uh, what is now a seven-week series, six weeks of talking about idols. The series has been called Idol Smashers. And uh, as uh, I close out tonight, uh, my hope is that we can um, kind of understand not only reflecting back on what we've learned, we've been on and off there, in and out of the MIR machine, MRI, MRI machine, uh, God looking at us and exploring, helping us to look at uh, what it is that goes on in our hearts, in our insides, and what it is that gives rise to idolatry in our hearts. Surprisingly enough, even as believers, this is something that we uh, have to be not only aware of, but that we have to come to grips with and really uh, see as something that we need to move to, to address and to change the way in which we live. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. Living idol-free, living a centered life. I like this uh, quote by C.S. Lewis. It says, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself. Because it is not there. There is no such thing. So often our idolatry is rooted in the fact that we are trying to find something that we think is apart from God, a commodity. Something that we think we can apprehend if we just work hard enough, study hard enough, play hard enough, do whatever it is that we do hard enough, we can apprehend this. And C.S. Lewis is just pointing out the obvious, or at least what should be obvious to it, is that life and all the goodness that accompanies life and that makes life good is found only in God, only in him. And this is why it's so important that we, we look back on this series. I trust that, that there will be some of these messages that you will go back to and think about and come to grips with and, and at the same time reflect on what it is that we're going to be looking at here this evening. Uh, idols are what we serve by placing valuable things before. Sometimes the idols that we have will be such that uh, we, will, we, will, we will invest our affection We'll invest our energy. We'll even invest relationships and money in order to gain and sustain the idols that we have. Some idols are such that we think if we do away with them, that somehow our very life will collapse in on around us. That we're so rooted in thinking that this is maybe even what I am. I think there's some things we have as idols that we think, but that's just the way I am. That, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a controlling person, but I don't regard myself as controlling. I may just be disciplined or I, I'm a type A personality. Well, that may be the case, but we want to make sure that we're not giving ourselves and our energy and our affections and our time and every good thing that we have to something that will not produce life. Over the last six weeks, we've looked at the idol of self, of significance and status, of pleasure relationships, money, control, and how we have set an exalted place for these things. We've, we've come to realize that idols are counterfeits because they are forgeries. They have no real 
value and they don't produce anything that has legitimate value in our life, and yet we invest heavily in them. And each week we've called to, we've looked at, we've identified, we've come to understand something of what is going on down in our soul, and we've, we've come to grips with the, the reality that in some cases uh, we, we have an idol. And we've looked at how we can do away with that and how we can overcome that. The antidote to idolatry in our lives is not simply one of tearing down those we have. We must respond to what the MRI of God's word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit shows us. God is merciful and long-suffering. I want to, Paul Tripp writes, think of how God works in your life. He is not content with just forgiving you for your sin. Having forgiven you, he is zealously committed to transforming you. He doesn't just target those intentionally rebellious moments. He works on the character of your heart as well so that you progressively become what he designed you to be because he is committed to character change. Your Lord goes after the idols of your heart and he will not rest until every thought, desire, choice, word, and action is fully rooted in the worship of him. You see... One of the things that is behind this whole business of idols, and I'll touch on it here more in a moment, is that we are designed by God to experience life in, with a quality and a, de- and a degree of wholeness that we yearn for. This world that we live in is not the world we were designed for. This world that we live in, unfortunately, has done, has, is bent because the people that make it up are bent. But there is underlying it all a longing, a desire for that which only God can work in our lives and only God can bring us into. And that hunger that sometimes drives us to do things, give ourselves to things, worship things that are alien to God are born out of that deep need. And we have to honestly face that and come to grips with it in order for us to learn how to forsake idols and do what we're going to be talking about tonight, and that is learn how to live an idol-free life. When I started this series uh, seven weeks ago, uh, I, want, I said I wanted to take a page or a chapter out of the Treasury Department's training of internal, rev- uh, internal revenue, but also agents who deal with counterfeit money. And one of the things that um, <clears throat> they said that the only way to spot a counterfeit bill is by looking at it, studying it, and having intimate familiarity with the real thing. They never look at counterfeit bills. They can always tell the real thing or a false thing just simply because that's embedded in how how they've been trained. So this evening, I want to offer us a consideration of what it means to live a centered life. One lived in continual, ever-deepening relationship with Christ. For this is the only antidote to idols and our ability or our propensity to create them. I want us to consider a paradigm shift this evening. 
I want us to consider what it is to move away from living our lives for Jesus Christ and learning how to live and being committed to live our lives with Jesus Christ. Grace is more than God's strength to help me do what God has willed for me to do. Grace is God himself working in me, empowering me, but also forming Christ in me. Our desire for grace has to become more than God strengthen me for this. God forgive me for that. God help me with this. Grace is the very present the very presence of God working in you, working in me to change us. And we for our part need to learn how to work with the process. We don't work for our salvation, but we do work the salvation of God in our lives. We work with that. And that's what we want to look at. And let me add this. Our faith rests, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, in the power of God. Paul came in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. What Christ offers us is able to be entered into only as God's spirit ministers to us. God's work is done in God's power. How many of you would agree with that? God's work is done in God's power. Such power, however, is most often not seen in a moment, but experienced as strength, renewing life, and clarity by which we act, choose, and apply ourselves. I want to just, I want to underscore this because Sometimes we can have an expectation that if God is moving powerfully, it's going to be evident. I'm going to feel it. There is going to be something dynamic, something expansive, something energizing about the power of God working. And most of the time when God is doing some of his most powerful work, it's not anything we can tangibly feel. The reason is, how many of you can consciously, continually feel or sense the nature of God that's been planted in your heart? We can't. We live with it. Moment, we have times in worship where we experience that reality and we enjoy it. But there's something of the power and the work of God's Spirit in us that I want us to just begin to have a confidence is there and yield ourselves to it and embrace it. I believe Jesus is giving us <clears throat> a simple invitation into a centered life this evening in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, an invitation that has within it the means to change us deeply. So please stand as we read the word of God together. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Lord God, anoint these words, glorify your name and what we say this evening, and I just ask you, Holy Spirit, come and by your gracious living presence, Work the work that you intend to accomplish in our hearts, not only tonight, but as we leave this place. Amen. You may be seated. Come to me. 
Jesus is inviting people whomsoever that would hear his words. Clearly, he was talking to the people of Israel of that day and he, those whom he had compassion upon. And he looked upon as sheep without a shepherd. And he was saying to them, come to me. But he was also saying to those who may not have known anything about who God was, but resonated with something in what this man held forth. And if that's where you are tonight, whether you're in this room or within the, the sound of my voice, I just want to encourage you, if you have never come to Jesus Christ, if you have never come, and as, as uh, Pastor Sean said, tasted and seen that the Lord is good, he wants to meet you. And he wants to encounter your life. So Jesus here is doing something that's throughout this passage. He's giving an invitation and a command at the same time. Amen. Come to me, he says. When we hear that, one of the first things that needs to register <clears throat> is that there aren't any other options. We come to him. We can't come with a suitcase full of alternatives, he says, come to me. And this is where we start. Who, who, do, who is to come? All you who labor and are heavy laden. You have to excuse me tonight. I have some new glasses. And I am as blind as a bat up here unless I hold my paper like this. So you are seeing an old school man with old glasses, not old glasses, new glasses, functioning off of old scale technology right here. So bear with me. I'm not trying to hide behind my sheets. I'm just trying to read them. Thank you. Who does he invite? All you who labor and are heavy laden. The, the wording here in, in the actual, in the original language could be said, come to me all you who are beaten down. Or it could even be all you who are beaten up by the load you're trying to carry. Response, responding to Christ's invitation and command requires an honest assessment of our condition. Change occurs only at the point we are convinced we can't go on unless there is change. We need to be sick and tired of being sick and tired. In my years of ministry, one of the things I've marveled at is how hard it is for people to honestly assess where they really are. And then and to come to the point where I said, I've got to change. Something has got to change. Something has got to change. And this is, some, this is what we have to do. If we're going to come and, and allow Christ to meaningfully deal with our lives, it's got to come out of a clear recognition and embracing of the reality of where we're at. And if it's time for change, then it's time to enter into change. And we can't try to justify or rationalize or backstop or anything else that which will keep change from occurring. Our faith in Christ is our entree into the relationship that brings rest. Now, let me see. Here's what I was referencing earlier. New birth, being born again, is the entrance point of Christ now living in you and me. There was a point where Jesus was not alive in my heart, and then there was a point 
where the seed of the nature of God was planted in the soil of my heart. And that began to take root and grow up. It is, it is that point of faith where I ask the Lord into my heart to come and dwell with me. To, to make his dwelling with me. I see the need for God and I come to believe in him. Uh, that was being sung, by, sung about tonight when we remember what God has done. We remember what the before was like and we recall with affection and, and gladness and gratitude the after. And that's, where, that's what new birth begins to initiate. That's the turn that begins to happen. Too often, this important starting place becomes the point we find forgiveness and eternal assurance, and that is as far as it goes. Recognizing my need for mercy and forgiveness is not enough, however. It is when I realize that I'm living apart from God. It's when I realize that I'm living apart from God and, and, and from drawing from what I can only find in him. That is where oftentimes our life circumstances, our life situation will bring us. Are we born again? Are we going to heaven when we die? Sure. But the point is, salvation is not about where I'm going to end up. Salvation, the meaning of salvation is deliverance. I'm being delivered from what, I, what I've lived in and what's, what has operated in me up to this point. Such recognition, when we recognize that we're living apart from God and that we need to, find, to enter into our relationship with him that really does bring change, is both an invitation and a point of submission. Let me be clear. Our labor and load, the burden we carry, and the way we feel beat up often result from our effort to have things our way, to keep things under control, to be happy, trying to make my life work as I think it is or that I think it should be. Trying to make it work the way I think it should work is a battle. It's a battle. Control, determining outcomes, establish and maintaining my security and well-being. This is the work of an unsaved soul. Not one that's going to hell. Please. See, we've, we've, we've misused the word salvation. God, we are not, Christianity is not about eternal security. It's not about going to heaven when you die. Not primarily. That's, that's not fundamentally the issue. The issue is, what of heaven am I realizing and walking in now? Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ, the gospel we find him preaching in, the, in, the, in, the, in the, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is the gospel of the kingdom. He came announcing the kingdom of heaven as now present. I'm bringing it. Come to me, trust me, and begin to enter into the reality of the life of the kingdom. Now, that's the gospel he didn't talk. Now, he talked about Gehenna. He talked about hell. He talked about judgment. But it was in many terms, it was oftentimes what happens, how you choose to live if you don't come into the kingdom. Living on the outside of the kingdom is H-E-L-L-L-O. It is, it's not good. 
But here's the cry, here's the point of, 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 of grief is how many of us, even in this room, live there when we've been born of this. Born of the kingdom, we're not living in the life and reality of the kingdom. And that's what Jesus is inviting us to. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. It's in this effort to try to fight the battle of life and win it on our own terms, right there is where idols and idolatry begin. We look for things to aid us in coping, controlling, and getting done what needs doing and providing the needed escape from it all. That's what we've been talking about for the last six weeks. But Jesus says, I will give you rest. Rest, here again, is not a cessation from laboring. Jesus was not promising a commodity. He wasn't promising some kind of a rest boost, sort of like a Red Bull, you know, I just kind of, I, I just get a can of something. It, 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 only Jesus is got offering rest. It's not Red Bull, it's rest. That's not what it is that he was offering here. He said, I will give you rest. That rest, and we'll talk, I'll, I'll reference this a little bit in a moment, but that rest, that word rest in Greek is the word in the, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This word rest is what was most often used to translate Sabbath. Jesus was saying, come to me and I will lead you into a Sabbath life a life of rest with me. But Jesus is offering not a commodity, he's offering a way into rest. He's offering us a way of life and living and thinking and choosing and doing that will provide us and, and, and bring us into a place where we do what we do out of rest. And how does he say that? Or how does he want that accomplished? Take my yoke upon you. Again, both a command and an invitation. A choice is required. There must be a response. We must do something by way of response. Jesus is giving us picture images of something. So clearly, he doesn't intend us to go out and go to a farm someplace and buy a yoke and put it on. He's giving us a picture of something. But for our part, we want to hear the pictures that the Lord gives us, whether it's in a parable or in this case, and then we want to think about what their implications are. We need to engage our minds. We need to engage and think about what, are, what is being pictured here. What is Jesus offering me? What, is, what am I being asked or invited into? What is offered <clears throat> is the actual outworking Jesus is offering us. He said, you were born again. The seed of my nature is planted in you. You want it to grow up. You want to experience the life. Have I got a deal for you? Come and join me in my yoke. Take my yoke upon you. And let what has been planted in you come to full fruition. Being yoked in Christ is how we learn to live with him. To his hearers of that time, yoke was code for oppression. The Romans were considered to have placed a yoke on the people of, of, of Israel. 
It was also code for the legal obligations placed upon them by the Pharisees and the priests. The picture of the yoke for us is that of Christ inviting us to be joined to him in a close, side-by-side relationship, a partnership, a communion that is ongoing. The yoke is, is what we picture. When we picture a yoke, oftentimes it's two oxen pulling in a field side by side, walking together, cheek to cheek, able to communicate. They don't talk to each other, I don't think. But, but walking in a way that is, that is sharing the labor, but doing so in a way that, that they're being harnessed together is a, is a good and comfortable thing. Being yoked is to focus on what is directly ahead and doing so in both cadence with and enjoyment of the one you're yoked to. Now, understand this. Whether you're a project manager at work, whether you're working currently on some complicated engineering design, whether you're a mom at home with three small children, wherever you are, the issue is to see that you're there by the will of God. And as such, it's not a matter of asking Jesus to come into your work situation. It's a matter of starting your day realizing Jesus and I are walking into this situation. And let me just ask you this. Who better knows how to project manage than the creator of the universe? Who knows how to solve a complicated engineering issue but the one who created the very things you're working with to solve it? Who knows how better to work with three small children than the one who gave you those three small children and created them? So what we're looking at here is not just some picturesque thing, notion, some romantic notion of being with Jesus. I I think Jesus was intending to give us a picture that as we think about it, as we measure the implications of it, as we step into this every day, consciously, purposefully, and move in to what we're doing. We're, go- we're doing it in a, in a cheek-to-cheek fashion with the Lord himself. And there's something in that that I think God wants to open up to us and help us to live from. The practical outworking of this command and invitation means that we embrace it with our thinking, considering its implications, discerning what is required to apply it, and then to exercise our will and choose to take up what is real in the Spirit. In other words, Jesus really does want us to enter into a relationship with him that is like this. He wasn't just, he wasn't just making a neat picture. This is something he wants of us. He's inviting us. And we, for our part, have a wonderful opportunity to take it up. And keep in mind, after all, we're disciples. Have you ever, have you, I was confronted with this the other evening. I was listening to, to some, have you ever just said to Jesus or said to yourself or said to your neighbor, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ? We talk a lot about discipleship, but do we ever come back and affirm? And, and have you ever in your life identified yourself as a disciple, not as just as a Christian, not just as a believer, those are all good, 
not saying anything bad about any, any other way, but there's something good when we realize that we have stepped into something, that we have embraced something, that we are disciples. And Jesus says, learn of me. Learn of me. The call here is not to learn about Christ. It's not to simply learn the words of Christ, but it is to learn Christ himself. Vine's word study says, it's not simply the doctrine of Christ or more of his teaching, but learn Christ himself of so applying the knowledge as to walk differently. See, the Hebrew version of learning, understanding of learning, and the Greek understanding of learning were two very different things. We've all grown up with a Greek understanding. The Greek understanding says if you can recite the facts, if you can put the answers down on the page, you've learned it. The, the Hebrew understanding of learning was if you do it and you're living it, you've learned it. And if you're not living it, you haven't learned it. Jesus is saying, learn of me. And what is he saying to learn? I am, low, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Here is what we're to learn of Christ. We're to be transformed. We're, we're to understand what it is that he's commending to us, not so that we can just understand it, but so that it can become the way we become. I'm low, I'm gentle. The word there is meek, would probably be a, a more accurate translation. And it's a hard word to define. It's closely related to humility. It implies submission, but it's not resignation or compliance, and it certainly is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is to humble myself before God, expectantly yielding all that I have, expectantly yielding all that I have, all that I am, and all I do to him, doing so in confident assurance that all things are from God's hand and that by grace they will all be worked for my good. Anybody ever, does that remind you of a passage of scripture somewhere? God works all things together for the good. Meekness expectantly yields to that reality. And that's what Jesus, clearly that's how he lived and that's how he walked. This is to live with hope, utterly relying upon God's love, learning to trust that love, to uphold, sustain, deliver, and that God will deliver and accomplish everything that he intends to. When we live in meekness, we're living in utter reliance upon God, but not just reliance upon him for provision, Reliance on the fact that he is the God who is in charge of it all. And as such, we can confidently and even expectantly yield ourselves to him and to what's going on around us. Meekness is expressed in mildness, gentleness, composure under stress. Character qualities that are formed in us by grace. Learn of me, Jesus says. And he says, speaks of himself, and I'll comment only briefly on this, being lowly. For us as sinners, being lowly is something that we ought to always embrace. Compared to the holiness of God, our depraved, our fallen state automatically qualifies us and we should embrace it as being lowly. We humble ourselves. We are glad for the mercy of God. But Jesus wasn't in that state. So when he spoke of lowliness, he was talking about his creatureliness as a human being. 
He utterly depended on the Father to make every provision and to sustain him in everything that he needed. And he commends that to us as creatures. The birds of the air, they don't worry about what they're going to eat. Flowers of the field, don't worry about what they're going to wear. Creatureliness is something to be embraced in the trust and confidence that God our Father loves us and is going to care for us. To learn Christ, <clears throat> to learn Christ is to see both of these virtues worked into the very fabric of our hearts by our practice and application of them in our choices, our thinking, and the way in which we relate to people. Remember, discipleship is active. We're not consumers. Today's Christianity would oftentimes offer us so much that we can pick and choose from, but as disciples, we are actively engaging. We're rousing ourselves. We are intentional. We're purposeful. And we key off the things that God has said to us, and we learn Christ, and we're changed, and we're transformed. Jesus, John says, 1 John says this, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus is commending what we, need to, what we need to be conformed to. Well, let me just hurry on here. And you will find rest for your souls. I've mentioned rest earlier. Rest is not rest from work, but it's rest in work. It's not the rest of inactivity. Now, I love this. This is quoted in, in Vines. I don't remember what it was quoted from, who it was quoted from, but listen to this. It's not the rest of inactivity, but of the harmonious working of the faculties and affections of will, heart, imagination, conscience, because each has found in God the ideal sphere for its satisfaction and development. In other words, the rest that the Lord is inviting in, us into is a rest that is reflective of the harmonious interaction an integrity, a wholeness that we are increasingly coming into because we're walking with Jesus, because we're being changed by Jesus, because grace is working in us, because we have embraced the reality of the kingdom of heaven and we're committing ourselves every day to learn what it looks like to live in that kingdom and to walk with him. That is the rest that God calls us into. But note, meekness and lowliness of heart are the keys that unlock that rest. Be this way and you will find rest for your souls. Again, Jesus isn't offering us some kind of a drink that'll make us all feel restful for a moment. You know, I, I remember, I've probably done it myself, coming back to this passage of Scripture and, and, and counseling people who'd come to me just, just so upset. And, so, and well, you just, you know, what'd the Lord say? He says, come to me and I'll give you rest. It's like we're, we're pulling off for a quick rest stop. And then we get back on the traffic and go, that's not what Jesus is describing here, obviously. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus summarizes by affirming what he has just said. There is a continuing labor. The yoke is an instrument for doing work. That's what yokes are for. So it's not a matter of ceasing from something. It's a matter of doing what we do differently. 
of coming into the work and the labor of life with him. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light could be the byline of a centered life. It's what it's when we're centered on Christ, it's how we desire to live and it's what we're pressing into and what we're asking the Lord to form in us. Living like this leaves no room for idols. My provision, my focus, my supply all flow from my ongoing relationship with Christ. Indeed, the direction, purpose, and means for life flow to me as I follow him. Where's idols? Idols aren't even in the county. They're not only not next door, they're not around. Because everything in my life is oriented toward my relationship with Christ, my confident expectation, and yieldedness to God. And the rest that that brings me into. So the question is, will we respond to the invitation? Will we submit to the command? Deuteronomy 30 Moses writes this, Return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your souls. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and the length of your days. Loving God with all our heart, walking and living with him, is what life is about. That's what life is about. We long for the wholeness and peace, the integrity of such a life, as I've been saying throughout. Going to heaven, escaping judgment, even winning people to Christ, they're all important, but they're not the central thing. These activities, these assurances proceed from the primary thing, loving God and becoming like Christ. We think in terms of function and result. God thinks in terms of relationship and transformation. Relationship will give rise to function. Effective function, effective work, fruitful work, <clears throat> good results spring from the soil of relationship. We need to put, as I sometimes say to people, the emphasis on the right syllable. It's relationship. Tearing down idols does not keep me from creating new ones. A centered life, one lived in the yoke with Christ, is the real thing. And only an antidote, and is the only antidote to a counterfeit life lived in our own strength. Amen? Well, Lord, I just pray, God, that we would individually, each of us, weigh what is being said here, what you are inviting us into. That, Lord God, we would have looked over back over the last six weeks and we would have come to see that, God, something has got to change. Whether it's in my, my propensity to control, my lust, my desire, my stinginess, whatever it might be, my craving for relationship and affirmation in relationship, whatever it might be, that Lord God, I need to change. 
And the only way to change is with you. With you. Yes, by you. But you're going to work as I am with you. So Lord, would you help us to hear the invitation you offer to us in this time, in this place. After six weeks of looking at what needs to change, Lord, would you give us a heart to respond, to join you, to, to, to come to you, believing you are the one who will, give, who will lead us into rest, taking your yoke and learning you, Jesus, learning what it is to be meek, to be expectantly yielded to God and confident as a creature that you will care for us. And then entering in at every point, at every turn, the rest that you have for us. God, make us whole. Make us whole, Lord. We need you, and we need what only you can do in us, but what only you can be for us. And I pray for everyone that's hearing this message tonight. God, let us have hearts to turn to you and to be made different by walking with you. Amen.